I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Sterling Johnson, the Jean R. Finley Professor of Geriatrics and Dementia at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a world-renowned Alzheimer's disease researcher. He is particularly interested in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease before people experience symptoms, and he studies this pre-symptomatic stage using biomarkers obtained through brain imaging and cerebral spinal fluid collection. Since 2014, Dr. Johnson has led the RAP study, or the Wisconsin Registry for Alzheimer's Prevention, which has the distinction of being the world's largest family history study of Alzheimer's disease. Today we are going to talk about something that has gotten some media attention in the recent months, and that's the development of a blood test for predicting risk for Alzheimer's disease. Sterling, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nate. It's great to be here. Now, for years, the Alzheimer's disease research community has been working on identifying biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease in brain imaging and cerebral spinal fluid. What do these biomarkers tell us? That's a a great question. This is such a fascinating field. It's fun to talk about. Biomarkers are simply biological markers of a disease. And these markers that you just mentioned in PET scans and in the spinal fluid tell us about the protein levels that may be indicative of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, let me just break that down a little bit. On the PET scans, we can measure how much amyloid protein aggregation or clumping there is in the brain. And when we do something called a tau PET scan, we can detect the extent of neurofibrillary tangles. The main component of that is this tau protein and and that tau protein clumps together in the brain to form these tangles. So these PET scans uh, really do tell us not only if Alzheimer's disease and by Alzheimer's disease, I mean the physical manifestation of it in in these lab tests. The other thing that the PET scans do is tell us where it is, what part of the brain it exists in. And and that has a really important value for estimating how long symptoms, how long a person may go before they develop symptoms or how fast they might uh, progress in the future. So so that's just an incredibly important and valuable tool to us. The other one that you mentioned is the cerebral spinal fluid markers. And this is the fluid that bathes the brain. And it's part of the system that the brain uses to uh, get rid of all the metabolites and proteins and other molecules uh, that, that it's used. And amyloid and tau are some of the markers that can show up in the spinal fluid. And we know just by measuring the, the levels of these proteins in the spinal fluid, Uh, whether a person might have evidence of this disease in their brain. And so, again, a very powerful technique to help us understand this disease. And it's helping us understand how long the preclinical stage of this disease might be. And what we're learning from all of these markers is that this disease probably starts 20 or more years before dementia sets in. And that's a, a pretty powerful thing to know because that's where uh, that time frame is potentially the best time frame to intervene to eventually stop this disease from progressing to symptoms. And that's a powerful finding that Alzheimer's disease 
can be present in the brain for decades prior to a person experiencing the symptoms of it. And so one of the things I think for our audience to take away from that is that prior to having these biomarkers, so prior to Dr. Johnson being able to identify the proteins uh, in a PET scan or in spinal fluid, we had to rely on people to die first and have a pathologist look for these proteins. Is that right, Dr. Johnson? That's exactly right, yeah. Knowing of this information in life and can actually estimate when this disease may have started in a particular individual. And it's, that's just so incredibly elucidating. It, it just provides so much clarity and will help us address a number of questions in, in the near future. And so when you say, you know, when we think of treating Alzheimer's disease or preventing or curing it, one of the potential possibilities is actually identifying it in its earliest form, the presence of these proteins in people preclinical, and then having an intervention then. Yes, that would be tremendous. And uh, that's what we want to identify is what is that window of time? Do we intervene when amyloid is first elevated or does is there a sweet spot that might be a little further in to the disease uh, to, to intervene? These are things that we don't know yet. And we, we need to follow our participants who've been so brave and, and generous with their time and, and uh, letting us experiment to to see when these proteins start accumulating and uh, watch over time whether these things grow in, in the brain. And so uh, you know, we, we can't do it without these wonderful volunteers to help us understand the time course of this disease. And uh, like I said, it's becoming so elucidating. We can identify when amyloid begins in the brain, and we hope to be able to do something similar for these tau markers in the near future. And I'm just talking about the PET markers now. Um, that's where we really have tremendous temporal information in the biomarkers themselves. So then knowing what, what, what we now know about the biomarkers, about the techniques you're using, what is the significance and possible benefit of a blood-based biomarker test? It's groundbreaking. It's huge. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change the field. And um, I can't just say enough about how this will enable faster discovery and more accurate diagnosis. So right now, the, the two markers we've mentioned or the, the two modalities that we've mentioned are these uh, imaging scans. And that involves injecting a small amount of a radioactive compound into an individual. And it's, it's a small amount. It's, it's safe. We've had all these things um, approved and looked at by different regulatory bodies. And, and we know it's a small amount and it's safe. But still, it's, it's a little bit. And also, uh, these scans are expensive and not everybody can do them. You can't go to your community lab or community imaging center and get this kind of test. It has to be done in a major academic medical center, typically under a research study. So they're just not very accessible. And spinal fluid, you can imagine our participants ask questions about that, and they want to know that it's safe and that it's not going to hurt. And some people are willing to do it and some aren't. And that's because we have to put a needle in a person's lower back below the spinal cord, of course, but it, it goes into that spinal column where the fluid can be accessed. And it, it doesn't sound too enticing to, uh, to many of our participants. And uh, it's certainly, these are not things that we can do on a, on a large scale for public screening of, for this disease. We need a test that will ultimately be something that can be done in a doctor's office and that can have a, a result that has some interpretation, some predictive value, 
And that's what these blood-based tests offer. Accessibility to all populations and also the inexpensiveness of this is also huge. So it's, it's going to be a game changer. It's going to help us in research and it's going to help us clinically once these things are approved. And so there have been a lot of large announcements about progress into this blood-based biomarker test or the series of tests that are, that are currently being studied. What does the blood test tell us about what's going on in the brain? Is it similar to what the spinal fluid test or the PET scan tells us? It's very similar. And, and in fact, those are the kinds of tests, those are the kinds of studies that need to be done to tell us if this blood test is working. We have to kind of cross it against the, uh, the PET scans and the CSF tests and hopefully have the same kind of agreement, uh, the, the congruence uh, between the blood markers and the more established tests. And what we're seeing is that there's very good agreement between these different tests. And then actually, that's my next question is, you know, to date, can you speak to the accuracy of the ones that have reached the news? Yeah. The, uh, there's, there's several different markers that, um, that people are testing, but the two that are most advanced and, and that are going to be the most helpful are these markers of amyloid and tau. And so the marker of amyloid in the blood, it's above 90% accurate. Uh, when compared against the PET scans or against um, the, the spinal fluid tests, 90%. And it gets a little bit better if you also include a person's age and also their APOE status, which is a genetic marker, a genetic indicator, risk indicator of amyloid. And so uh, those, all those things combined bring the accuracy up to about 94%. And that's, uh, I would just say there that you know, that's about what we would want to have. It'd be better if it was 100, but anything above 90 or uh, 92% is is very acceptable. Um, what is the extent of false positives? Um, what's the false negatives? These are things that we need to do more investigation on in larger samples, but so far the data for amyloid looks very good. And in that other protein, tau, the evidence there is similarly very good. It's also above 90%. And that's pretty incredible. So this is a fairly accurate test, more than fairly. This is an accurate test. And so I have a, just a general question for you, and, and maybe this is shared among non-scientists out in the community. Is the amyloid or tau that you're measuring in the blood, is it the same proteins as the ones that are developing in the brain? Because how does that work? Are the proteins from the brain leaking out and getting into the blood or vice versa? Yes, that, that's exactly right. And it's it's not necessarily leaking, but it's it's going through established pathways for for how the brain gets rid of these metabolites and, and things that these kind of waste products from the brain get into the spinal fluid and from there they get into the blood. And we know that the spinal fluid turns over completely a couple times a day. And so that means that there's this constant production of the fluid and a constant draining of these uh, waste products from the brain. And they can be measured in the spinal fluid and now we can measure them in the blood itself. And that's incredible to be able to do that. And of course, our brain does have the blood-brain barrier, which is very protective. But then knowing that, of course, some of these products have to be cleared. And now our scientists have been able to identify these key ones and then use them so that we can uh, hopefully predict or, or with, with good accuracy that someone has these changes. 
Yeah, it's easy for things to get out of the brain than it is to get in. That's for sure. The blood brain barrier is a it's a more or less a one way um, barrier that doesn't allow things into the brain that aren't supposed to be there. But these metabolites and these waste products do drain into the blood. And with these specific markers, you can detect what kinds of amyloid is produced by the brain and what's produced by uh, the liver and other body organs that, that are less relevant to Alzheimer's disease. So then I'd, I'd like to share a statement and then ask you a question about it, Sterling. So blood-based biomarker tests are, are more accessible, they're less expensive, and certainly blood is easier to obtain than brain imaging and spinal fluid through a lumbar puncture. So this means that this test could be more widely available through a doctor's office and, and potentially even through at-home testing companies like we've seen for other genetic tests. Now, the consequences of this are that people are going to have greater access to the results, but without the support of a genetic counselor or other doctors to talk them through what these results actually mean. So obviously, before we, we see something like this out in the community in doctor's offices or direct to consumer, you know, more needs to be done within the research community you know, regarding testing, validating. And I'm just wondering, what do you see are the necessary steps within research before something like this could be shared um, with clinics and with the community? Yeah, these, these are the, exactly the questions that need to be addressed. We need to know what that false positive rate is in a community setting. We know that in the research setting, in, the, in these academic medical centers where these things are discovered, it's, it's very accurate. But what about in the, in the average community setting? What's the level of accuracy? We, we need to do those kinds of tests or those kinds of studies. So the false positive rate, the false negative rate are important. We need to make sure that if a test is positive, that a person has access to the confirmatory tests that would then be needed. Just like if you have a, a positive Coligard test, you need to go and have a colonoscopy. Um, that's We need to have that kind of backup for this. And so that would mean that a positive blood test would require perhaps an amyloid PET scan or a tau PET scan in the future or the CSF test to, to confirm what we know from the blood. That's one way of doing it. It would, it would be, of course, ideal to have an intervention that, that we could um, act on uh, for these results. If there's a positive test that indicates a person has Alzheimer's disease, is there something we can do about it? And that is a, that's a big question. And that's, I know, the focus of many of your other podcasts uh, around what we can do with not only pharmaceutical intervention, but lifestyle and, and health modification to improve brain health. But these are the kind of things that need to be sorted through. It's not ready for the clinic yet. It's not ready for the community. The first thing we have to do is, uh, is replicate these things that are re being reported by the manufacturers of these or the, the people who produce these, these tests. Now we need to get this test in the hands of, uh, of uh, impartial academic uh, investigators who can uh, road test them, so to speak, in the in the more of a real world setting, and let's see uh, how accurate they really are. And so, I'd like to end by asking you kind of a tough question, and we won't hold you to your answer. But can you give us your predictions as far as a timeline for this test, from where we are now to the academic research centers to the clinic? I think the amyloid test will be ready to go. Um, I would say by mid-2021. 
I think the uh, the company that is closest to this is called C2N, and they they've indicated through their own announcements and their own studies that that their test is uh, is nearly ready. So I I think that'll be available very soon. Now, will it be available to the extent that we want it to be available in terms of access in the community clinic? I don't know the answer to that, but I I believe it will be um, something that that uh, clinicians can start accessing, uh, hopefully in the next six to 12 months. And what about the the ones that were just announced more recently at the studies, the ones that looking at that tau protein in the blood and how that could be diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease? What do you think timeline as far as the research community and then moving on to the clinical community? I also um, think that's going to go quick. I think there's uh, a lot of evidence so far. And the one of these tau assays is called PTAU217. And that was developed by a company that you have all heard of called Eli Lilly. And so they have the resources and infrastructure to, to do these kinds of validation studies fairly rapidly. And so it's not quite as advanced as the A-beta 42 to 40 test, the amyloid test. Uh, but yeah, I would say 12 to 18 months, there'll be a, a clinical test for this. And so in essence, you're saying there's going to be a huge rapid shift in Alzheimer's disease research and hopefully then care starting 2021, moving into 2022. I think there will be. I may be uh, too optimistic about this, but I, I don't see any major barriers to this other than making sure we can confirm these test results in other academic medical centers. And that's happening as we speak. More papers are being published on PTAU 217 nearly every week now. Uh, there was one just published uh, this week, and, and it's all looking good. And so I, I'm optimistic that we'll have something in 2022 for the tau and maybe earlier in 2021 for the amyloid test. Well, that's wonderful. And we accept your optimism, Sterling. So so thank you for that. And, and thank you for today. Uh, I do hope to have you on when we have more results on these blood-based biomarker tests. Thanks, Nate. It's great to be here. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.